thinking about what would be the name of this talk that I was going to give tonight. Again, thinking about what would be great. I'm much better at great names for titles than I am at actually writing out whole stories. I like titles a lot. So I thought I'd call it the Phantom Tightrope. It really is about balance in practice, or strengthening practice, or steadying practice, or actually something much more mundane than uh, than what the title might sound like. It's really a cookbook. This is helpful hints for how to strengthen practice, a little more this and a little more this. But I wanted to start with Sharon's uh, uh, image this morning of we go along balanced on a tightrope and we're walking along carefully on the tightrope and all manner of interesting or uh, captivating or desirable or undesirable things go by us and if we keep our balance steady, we keep on on the tightrope. But from time to time, either because something looks good and we reach out for it, or it looks unappetizing and we recoil from it, we fall off the tightrope and find that we fall and find ourselves on another tightrope. So I was visualizing that as she was talking about it, and I had this vision of only tightropes, just tight ropes and tight ropes and tight, like tight, limitless tight ropes, not any top to them or bottom to them or side to them, the vast tight ropes of space, but not any end or any beginning to them either, limitless tight ropes. So there was only just here. When I was a little girl, I used to talk to my father about what's over the clouds. You know how when you're a child, you draw pictures, or children draw pictures, they draw the ground and flowers and trees coming out and houses and people. And then they draw clouds and moons and stars and sky and sun. And then they draw a top, because there's a top. Everybody knows that there's a top. The Rubaiyat says, and that great inverted bowl they call the sky. But what if there's no bowl? So I used to say to my father, so what's, a, what's past the clouds? And he'd say, well, and we, and we knew about stars and moon and all that. And I'd say, well, what's past all the planets? He'd say, well, there are stars. And what's past all the stars? Well, there are more stars. And what's past all of them? Well, there are galaxies and more of them and more of them and more of them. And I'd say, where's the top? And he'd say, there is no top, just forever. And that gave me a weird feeling. It made me uncomfortable. It was kind of a cringy feeling. Like here I am in the middle of this vast space, this one small girl in the middle of this one big space. And it didn't feel good to me. I think that there's a way for it all to turn into spaciousness and the realization that it is all spaciousness and we are also vast space in a way that's quite freeing. And that's one way of thinking about what this practice is. Actually, thinking is not maybe the right word, because this isn't a practice of thinking. The whole idea of how does that happen, that out of the vastness of space, creation manifests, conditioned phenomena manifest and disappear, that conditioned phenomena manifest and disappear. 
How does it happen from whence and why and how? Figuring it out is very hard. Allowing understanding to arise because it's self-relevatory, I think, is what the nature of this practice is. I think that truth and understanding and wisdom are revealing themselves in every moment. And that what we do in practice, really, in perhaps not only the contemplative practice that we do here, but in wholesome living, in right action, in right livelihood, in right speech, in right understanding, right aspiration, which support right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, is we prepare the soil, we prepare the ground, so to speak, for the arising of insight. We can't force the insight. Remember when Joseph was talking about planting a garden? You can't pull the carrots out before they're finished. But you can prepare the soil and you can put the proper nutrients in, you can put the proper seeds in, you can water it, and then you can wait. And the carrots arise all by themselves. With a a haiku that sustained me a lot in the early years of my practice. And the haiku is, the ripe fruit falls off the tree all by itself when it gets sweet enough. I used to think about that a lot. So if we think for a while, this is the helpful hints part of of what I wanted to talk about, of practice, say, as gardening, and talk about how do you prepare the soil for the arising of truth or the understanding. I have to talk again about what is mindfulness, really. All kinds of definitions of mindfulness. I, I like one that uses words like, mindfulness is the balanced appreciation or the balanced recognition of each moment of experience. Balanced in the sense that it's alert, it knows what's happening, that there's no grasping in it and no aversion in it. The balanced recognition of each moment of experience. It's not actually the same as awareness. Sometimes people use mindfulness and awareness kind of interchangeably. It's possible that there's an awareness of what's happening that's incomplete. There's an awareness that's partially aware of what's happening, but perhaps unconscious to desire or aversion present along with recognition. That's not really mindfulness. You can be aware of grasping or of aversion. Really one of the things that we try to notice in our practice. And as we are aware, in the moment of real awareness of that tendency in the mind either to reach for or to recoil from, the really awareness of that very tendency just sees through the tendency is empty and it just fades away. Then the moment really continues in a more balanced way that desire and aversion become themselves transparent, themselves empty when they're really seen. They arise, of course, in response to pleasant and unpleasant experience. They're not, as sometimes people seem to think, kind of naughtiness of the mind. 
the, the normal response of the mind to pleasant and unpleasant experience. And when they are seen clearly as that tendency of mind that arises as, as awareness becomes, as the perception of pleasant or unpleasant experience arises, then the very tendency itself just drops away. So if we think about mindfulness as awareness arising in a balanced way, seeing clearly and remaining balanced, not grasping at or not pushing away at experience. Resting in composure. Then we can understand all the descriptions of this practice as being a balanced practice that balances both concentration practice, composure practice, and tranquility practice with the practice of staying alert and refining awareness. I don't know that you may not know that um, it seemed like an omen in the time that uh, 15 years ago or so uh, people were looking to buy this building, this very monastery. We're looking at various properties in New England and this particular monastery that was previously owned by the Blessed Sacrament Fathers was also on sale and it looked like the right sort of place and people were getting ready to buy it. And then they found that the town motto of Barry for back until when the town was founded, which is on the sleeve and the emblem of all the Barry police force, is tranquil and alert. So that seemed like the right omen to buy this piece of property. That's the practice of tranquil alertness that we are doing here. We are trying at the same time to condition a mind that's both tranquil and alert. Tranquil enough so that awareness can arise in um, a, a ground of tranquility, so it can arise in a balanced way poised, seeing and understanding, rocking, being with, accepting, surrendering to, being one with what comes up. Enough tranquility to support that awareness. And in just the right balanced way, too much tranquility leads to a certain amount of somnolence. Not enough tranquility leads to not enough base for the awareness to come up in that balanced way which makes it real true mindfulness. So all of what we practice and all of what we technically do is really a way of trying to establish and reestablish and reestablish that um, proper balance of tranquility and alertness in the mind. When people present their practice in interviews one of the things that we listen for is, is there enough composure and is there enough alertness? And really the interview interventions will be either to say, why don't you try doing this if there isn't enough composure in the mind? Or if there's so much composure that there isn't any alertness, we might say, well, why don't you try these kinds of ways to wake up the awareness or refine the awareness? If you think of that as being just the ideal state of mind into which truth arises all by itself as self-revealing. It's a wonderful line from scripture. There's a line from uh, the Song of Songs. 
And the line is, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. I think what that means is not, I am asleep in the sense that I am asleep. It means my normal ego self doing all of its chatter, all the needs and demands and thoughts and speculations and judgments that are normally my chattering self going on, that part is asleep. But my heart is awake. That part of me that's open to understanding is awake. My heart is, my, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. What we do in developing that kind of tranquility is we make that part of us that's chattering and distracting, we allow it through our practice to settle down and go to sleep. And then the part of us that watches and is really here and open to understanding stays awake. So we're doing two things all the time. We're trying to steady the mind, trying to wake it up. And we're doing several things that mitigate in the direction of steadying. One of the things we're doing is we are purposely selecting throughout the day particular neutral objects to rest in when we can. Rest in the breath because for most people, for whom those people for whom breathing is not a conflictual activity, they don't have breathing illnesses, it's not a problem about breathing, the breath is pretty plain. Everything that's true about everything is true of breath. It arises and passes away. It's insubstantial. There's no one who breathes. The breath just happens. If you try to hold on to the breath, you create suffering. All the things that are true about anything are true about breath. And yet, it's the plainest thing in the world. And we, everyone is breathing all the time. So it's right here. And it's pretty, um, pretty neutral, pretty predictable. Some breaths are long, some breaths are short, but nevertheless, there's a regularity. It's in and out. It's not in and in. It's in and out and in and out. And in its very regularity, it has the possibility of really contributing to building composure and tranquility. It's plain. So is walking back and forth. If walking is not a conflictual activity, you walk back and forth in a plain place. It's not a nature walk. It's not an athletic walk. It's not a dance walk or a particular movement walk. It's just a walk back and forth and back and forth. The sensations are the plain sensations of pressure, pressure disappearing, lightness, pressure reappearing. Pressure disappearing, airiness or spaciousness and pressure reappearing. If you really feel what's happening in my feet, what's happening? It's all of what's true about phenomena arising and passing away. Pressure and then no pressure, pressure and then no pressure. Everything is arising and passing away. If you lifted up your foot and you held on to that, you'd have discomfort. Suffering would arise from holding on. It goes on by itself. There's, but there are ways in which sometimes when people are walking along, it becomes quite clear that there's no one who's walking. Walking is happening. Everything that's true about everything can reveal itself in the breath, in the walk, in the most simple parts of our activity. We don't have to wait 
to some fancy time when we're doing a more interesting object, every moment of experience has the potential of displaying truth. So we do the walk and we do the breathing just because it's plain and tends to composure. We do metta practice because it tends to composure. It's not so plain, it's not as neutral as walking or breathing. It's a little bit rigged in the direction of positive because it's uh, positive affirmations for oneself and for others. But in that same way, those positive affirmations, those positive aspirations for oneself or for other people have the tendency of contributing to tranquility in the mind and heart. So they're really a, um, um, a skillful contribution to tranquility. Another thing we do as part of our practice of cultivating tranquility is we try as much as we can to let whatever comes up, come up, and not struggle with it. Struggling with it makes the mind untranquil. So that as you sit here day after day and hour after hour, all manner of storms come up in the mind and all of the difficult states, all of the hindrances that we spoke about the other night, all come up and hang around and pass and come up again and come up again and come up again. And probably you find, as you practice, that one of the most skillful things we can do, in addition to seeing them clearly, seeing through them, is really not struggle with them. That struggling to get rid of this one, we exhaust ourselves just in time for the next hindrance to arrive. Maybe the next hindrance of exhaustion or torpor. That in a certain sense, not struggling. Saying this is what's happening now, this is not such a pleasant moment of experience, but it's what's happening. Not struggling is what adds to composure. Sometimes it's hard to do that when the states that come up aren't so pleasant. It's helpful sometimes to think that of uh, an expression. It's another gardening expression, but this is a gardening expression from Suzuki Roshi, who was um, a very important Zen teacher in California. Suzuki Roshi called those kinds of uh, difficult periods in the mind, difficult things that come up in the mind. He called them mind weeds. He said, they're good, those mind weeds, because actually you don't have to get rid of them. They just stay there and they contribute to the soil. He said, they're manure for Bodhi, fertilizer for wisdom. It's all all right. It's all useful. Sometimes people think, if I only wasn't having this dreadful rage now, I'd be surely on my way to enlightenment or something. And that what I have is antithetical to where I'm going. What's come up and what's here now is getting in the way of my making progress in this practice. Everything that's there is manure. Everything that's there is a seed. Everything that's there is a total potential moment for wisdom. And we get what we get. The best thing to do is to use what we get rather than wait till we get something better. Another thing we do to help along in in developing tranquility is we do the schedule here, which is essentially a very simple schedule. We don't do too much. We do it in silence. 
When I'm doing intensive practice, I find that I do less and less and less, less and less diversionary things. It's just too complicated. If I come to breakfast and I find that I've forgotten my vitamins in my room, I get them at lunchtime. I just don't do too many things. I think of the practice periods, if I can, as being from when I wake up in the morning until I go to sleep. But I certainly think of practice periods in bigger blocks than 45 minutes or an hour. I think in the morning we practice here from 8.15 until noon or 12.30. I try to think of that as one continuous piece of practice in which I devoted to not complicating it by doing anything else but sitting and walking and sitting and walking and paying attention in every moment. In fact, expanding that idea even bigger to just the sitting and walking time, we really have been talking all day today as making the whole practice, the whole day, one continuous practice period and keeping the mind focused as much of the time as we can in what's our present experience. When we eat, when we take a shower, go to the toilet, get up from where we are and go to the walking places, those aren't in-between places. Those are just other positions or activities in which to continue being mindful moment to moment. You really can. You know, one of the most exciting lines in scripture is the line at the end of the, for me anyway, one of the line at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta where the instructions for mindfulness practice is given and then in the end it said anybody who really does this for seven, for seven days continuously really develops some great and enduring understanding. That's a terrific kind of a carrot in terms of um, encouraging zeal or enthusiasm of practice. Seven days, that's not, that's not a long time to pay attention moment to moment. One of the ways in which I try particularly to maintain continuity in my practice throughout the day is I try very much to do a lot of noting of what's happening in every moment. I actually do more noting in the uh, periods where I am walking from one activity to another or standing up or going to do something else or doing my yogi job or taking a bath or eating. There are times when the attention is quite one-pointed in focus where perhaps I'm sitting and the experience is just breath arising and passing away. And really the attention is so firmly rested in the breath that really words fall away. I don't look for words when presence is really alert. Maybe sometimes in walking as well, the, the sense of being at one with the experience is so clear that words are extra and understanding and um, total grokking of the experience is happening on some immediate level that doesn't even require words. In between that, when I'm doing something complex like standing up and going somewhere or doing a job or going to my room, I say to myself all the time, what's happening? Now, making mental notes, stepping, 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 reaching, touching, turning, pulling, is not necessarily mindfulness 
think a lot of the time it's not mindfulness. A lot of the time it's just mental notes. It's just talking to yourself about what's going on. It's not really as you're raising the hand, feeling the raising and being at one with the raising. It's just raising the hand and touching the door. Nevertheless, saying the words and keeping the attention focused on what's happening, even when not totally at one with feeling what's happening, is at that moment precluding the possibility that the attention has wandered to next week or last week or anything else. That speculative, ruminative, ruminative, discursive thought is not happening in that moment. Just telling yourself what's happening. And moments of sequential telling yourself what's happening themselves develop concentration. Sequential moments of saying, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, because we're here. Each moment that we say it, even we don't feel it fully with our whole sense awareness. We're here. I had a tremendous resistance to doing that mental noting, especially in the in-between periods of going from one activity to another in the beginning of my practice, based on a ridiculous piece of my personal history that was about 30 years old or 25 years old when I started my practice. But when I was quite young, when I was an early adolescent in my early days of having boyfriends, I had a boyfriend, and a boyfriend named Danny, who was probably equally nervous about going out on dates as I was, and uh, I think controlled his nervousness by talking to himself, at the same time keeping up a conversation with me on the dates. So we would stand on a corner waiting for a bus, and he'd be keeping up whatever conversation with me. And under his breath, he'd be saying, waiting for the bus, waiting for the bus, waiting for the bus, getting on the bus, taking out the money, paying the fare. And I'm pretty sure, poor Danny, that he was doing it because he was nervous and he kept orienting himself in time and space. But I felt a little silly with him. Then. Time goes by, 25 years later, I'm in a practice where someone suggests to me that I should be saying, <laughs> waiting for the bus. <laughs> so I felt like an idiot doing it. And every time I did it, I thought about Danny, and I thought, I've gone mad, why am I doing this? And then finally, as with every instruction in this practice, in the beginning I thought, nah, and then at some point or another, I finally took it seriously and said, go for it, just do it. Don't think about it, don't evaluate it, don't figure it out, just do it. I said, I'll just do it. You just do it, everything changes. Just do it. And say, so it's so hard to say, talking to yourself. It is, just talk to yourself. Stepping, 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 reaching, touching, turning, pulling. All of a sudden, boom, you're here. One time you're lifting up the arm and you're saying, lifting, lifting, lifting. And all of a sudden, you know lifting. And you know it in a different way than you knew it before. And all of a sudden, it's not talking about it. All of a sudden, it's mindfulness. And mindfulness feels different than talking about it. It's actually quite ecstatic, a moment of mindfulness. It's amazing. I remember thinking to myself, when I first began to discover the difference between talking about an experience and being the experience, 
the amount of rapture that's present in being and experience blew me away. I'd be walking in a very careful way and really present and put your foot down and know that you're putting it down while you're putting it down. It's totally thrilling. And I thought to myself, talk about bizarre. I said, this is bizarre. I'm totally thrilled about putting my foot down and knowing that I'm putting my foot down. That's normally not the sort of thing that we think about as thrilling, but it is thrilling. Mindfulness is thrilling. It really is. So that's another way, both to develop mindfulness and to continue to continue to develop uh, composure and presence in the moment, increasing concentration. Just do it. At the same time, that composure and concentration is augmenting and deepening all the time, there's a way in which that needs to be balanced all the time with a degree of alertness and investigation and interest in the mind. Otherwise, by and by, the mind's just very composed. But there's not a lot of brightness in it or clarity and not a lot of potential for wisdom or understanding. It's not unpleasant to be very concentrated. I remember, um, I remember coming to my teacher at some point when I had finally developed a little capacity to concentrate. And uh, finally, there's such ease. You think, oh, phew, finally my body doesn't hurt. Finally, I have this mild level of rapture going. It's really pleasant can sit for hours, kind of tuned into the breath, in and out, in and out, kind of like a zombie, in and out, nothing much happening, because you kind of hypnotize yourself on the breath, but it's very pleasant, it's got a mildly pleasant flavor to it, sit there a long time, and I'd come and I'd finally report like a great achievement that I had done that. I mean, nobody said that wasn't good, but they said, all right, now, now that you got here, wake up. I mean, it's half the job to get here. Then the next job is to wake up. It's you got here to look around, see what's true, and now look around. Used to be a friend of mine who had a, uh, um, used to tell a story about a friend of his who had somehow taken a sign from a Reno casino that said, apropos of how the Reno rules go, you have to be present to win. Uh, And uh, he kept that in his office. And I used to think about that, but I think that's only half. If you go to Reno and you're just present, you don't win, you have to play. So here, getting to be present is half of it. Once you're present, you have to do something. And what you have to do 
is you have to look, okay, what's here? It's called the quality of investigation, the quality of interest. My teacher would say to me, don't just sit there, Sylvia, look around, what's happening? So it's okay to sit there, and if the concentration is quite steady and there's a lot of ease, that's all right. You can sit there for a while, but by and by, say to yourself, am I awake? You can do that by moving your attention around in the body. I'll feel this knee, that knee, I'll feel where I'm sitting. I'll feel my two hands. Okay, now I'm back in the breath. That's just a way of making sure that there's a kind of lightness or nimbleness to the attention, that it's not torporous. It's another way is to notice in those kinds of states that, uh, that it's kind of back up from the breath. The breath has the capacity to kind of make the mind a little bit torporous and a little bit hypnotized. You find yourself in a very steady and concentrated and peaceful state. You really look at mind states that are present. Say, okay, what's true for me now? Peaceful, happy, spacious, easy. I wonder how I got here was sitting a little bit to the side, I was holding my breath, how can I make the state stay? Oh, wait a minute, that must be desire. Huh? That was the movement towards that. You can see a lot if you begin to back off the immediate object and look in a kind of expansive way. It's not only the object, but what's true. We're not here really to catalog objects, but to see what's true about it. Sometimes if you back up a little bit, Use some big screen, like the screen of mind state, and get to see. Not here to be a chronicler of events. Even when Joseph was talking the other night about being able to discriminate in terms of notes per minute, being able to discriminate in a more and more fine way, it's not to be an Olympic noter. I mean, it's not to notice... It's, it's not who gets the most notes wins, because there's a way sometimes of becoming a noter in such a way, in such a, a, a kind of a dogged way, that one gets very busy in the minutiae of the noting and not so relaxed around seeing the, the whole picture as it displays itself, that the notes are changing because everything changes that suffering arises as we cling, as clinging arises. That everything is actually empty, that it disappears in the seeing of it. It's not just to note it, but to note that as we see it, it disappears. There's nothing really there. We're naming ghosts. That's really the refined awareness that comes with continuous noting and continuous seeing. It's a value to continuous noting and continuous seeing because as the, as the awareness gets clearer and clearer and clearer, we really see objects for what they are, transient, empty. Really without substance. You get to experience that even the seer is empty. 
There's no sense of separateness, like a seer and what is seen. It's all awareness. It's also true that as awareness refines, everything gets more interesting. And the kinds of problems that people struggle with in the beginning just go away of themselves. People say, if I could just stop these incessant stories. The stories aren't so pleasant. All of our stories are stories that we've heard and seen dozens, hundreds of times, probably. We never, very rarely, rent the same video twice. But we sit through the same stories over and over and over again. As the concentration deepens and the mind becomes more tranquil, and as the awareness becomes more refined, every moment becomes much more interesting. It's way more interesting than our old videos. So that they fall away just because they're not interesting. This becomes fascinating. Sometimes when we start the practice, we have a feeling that this mindfulness practice is hard work. Actually, it's the course of least resistance that all the other work, battling with the stories and dealing with the stories and outwitting the stories and figuring out the stories and rethinking the stories, that's exhausting. Presence in the moment is actually the course of least resistance. Sometimes we make lists of uh, some of the verbs that suggest what mindfulness is like. It's like allowing, making space for, being one with, recognizing, appreciating, any of the above. They all approximate that feeling of just full presence in the moment. I thought of another good book title. I thought I would call this practice The Well-Mannered Heart. I like that. It sounds something like a well-tempered clavichord or something like that well-mannered heart, that this is a well-mannered practice, that we sit here and all manner of guests come to visit. And we behave equally nice to all the guests. We don't hide, first of all, behind the door and pretend we're not there and wait till they go away. Nor do we drag them in and cause them to stay if they were just passing by. Nor do we kick them out if they stay longer than we wanted them to. We are well-mannered hosts. You can be that if you realize that every moment that comes is equally of potential value in terms of waking up. Nothing is a more valuable moment or a more potential moment in terms of awareness or understanding arising. Pleasant, unpleasant. Every moment contains wisdom and the potential for waking up. I did a lot of my practice in a monastery in Santa Rosa, California, and I used to do my walking up and down in a certain corridor. And it, was a, it is a Catholic monastery, so they have all these nice, uplifting sayings, uh, like from hymns, or they're probably scripture verse. And I would pass by a sign as I walked back and forth, that said, we are called upon to meet each moment with joy. And every time I walked by the sign, it would catch my mind, and I'd have a little fight with it in the mind. And I'd think to myself, 
Okay, I get the beginning part. We are called upon to meet each moment. I'll give you that. But not the with joy part. Forget the with joy, because some moments we don't, we're not happy to have arrived. I, I think I have a more depth understanding of that now. I think from the point of view of every morning, every moment, is the potential deliverer of our own understanding and with it our own freedom, then we are called upon to meet each moment with joy and say thank you for arriving in a well-mannered way, not causing it to stay, not pushing it away, not choosing one moment over another. Whatever has come, it's our opportunity to learn. Sometimes we think, I'd rather learn in another way. That person in my group is having a better time than I am. I'd like to have his or her way to learn, not my way to learn. But we get what we get. Another thing that comes from Christian tradition is the the notion of abandonment prayers. You know what abandonment prayers are? Prayers where you say, I have no idea what would be good for me, so I'll take whatever I get. There's, a really, there's some very holy saints in the Catholic tradition who have written very famous abandonment prayers, speaking personally and saying, I have no idea what's good for me, so I'll just take whatever I get. I used to put them up on the wall in uh, my room here when I sat here. Over some periods of time, they gave me a lot of courage. And then one time, someone asked my friend Jack at a uh, class um, about the apparent lack of bhakti in this path. This seems so dry, the person said, this Vipassana path. It's so dry. It's not emotional. There's no singing, no chanting, no bowing. It's just, it's very dry. It's not bhakti, no heart. And he said, and it was a great answer, it informed my practice for a long time. He said, I think this is the most bhakti path of all, because in fact, there's a way in which, if you think about it, we sit down and we say, here I am, God, do whatever you want to me. We do. We don't say, I'll only take a pleasant hour, or I'll only take um, a focused breath. We sit down and we say, here I am, I have no idea what's going to happen to me. This is its own prayer of abandonment in a certain way. And in that very abandonment, it's a freedom. There's a real freedom to say, I'll take what I get, and I'm up for it. I mean, really, what more do we want in life but to be able to say, in any moment, I'll take what I get. I'll fix what I can if it's not right. Sometimes people get all alarmed when I say that. Social action, social justice, would you say thank you to something that's not right? Wouldn't you address it? I would, I would address it, but I would say no, thank you. I could say no and address it as much as I could, but not have bitterness, not have rancor, not have animosity. You fix what you can, and then you take what you get. It's actually quite straightforward.
So I thought I'd talk about tight ropes a little bit. Get around to ending at least with tight ropes as I started out talking about them. We sit here day after day, hour after hour, conditioning the kind of heart and mind that's awake and tranquil. The ego self, as much as we can, with all its incessant needs and chatter, is quietened down a little bit. But we are alert and vigilant and interested. And then experience displays itself. We open to it as it arises. Everything arises, like the guests, come as, and they stay as long as they stay. They go when they go. We don't hang on. We don't push away. Eventually we see that all the guests are quite insubstantial. Actually, we don't get visited by guests. We get visited by ghosts in a certain way. They look like they're real, but they're just ghosts. They're shadows. If you remember Joseph's talk last night, so is the sense of self a ghost, a shadow, an artifact created, but not really there. So it's really like ghosts entertaining ghosts. Nobody really there. It's just really the experience of conditioned experience arising and passing away out of nothing and into nothing. So on some level, there's no tightropes even, no one that's balancing and no one who's reaching out or falling down. There's no falling, no landing. It's just spaciousness and emptiness and moments of conditioned experience arising out of it and disappearing. I feel less creepy about it now than I did when my father told me about that 50 years ago. Actually, it's quite freeing. It's awesome. I think it's magic in a certain sense. It's all vast space and we're vast space. And part of the magic is that at the same time that that's true, we each of us remember who we are in this dualistic level of manifestation. We can have that perspective and we can remember our story. And the story is our unique story which seems so important to us, is so full of meaning. One of the things that's most amazing to me is not so much that matter comes into existence. That I can kind of understand that. But that we have feelings and emotions and sentiment. That seems so amazing to me. And the sense of self, that's pretty amazing. And that it's all experience arising and passing away. And we can have a real life that we live with a certain amount of feeling and compassion and passion and compassion as if it's real. But at the same time, if we have that other vision of where we really are and who we really are and what it's really like, the vastness of spaciousness, then we can do our personal life really fearlessly and really happily. So the same color Rinpoche as last night ending 
we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. Knowing that, we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Now we'll sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 15, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.